economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my good friend and co-host Ron Baker. And on today's show, our second installment of Entrepreneur Heaven. Well, Ron, this is the second time that we're going to cover four entrepreneurs. And I'm excited to talk about each of these four. Today, we're going to talk about... Steve Jobs, of course, Thomas J. Watson Sr., Mary Kay Ash, and Charles Revson, not necessarily in that order. And, you know, I just want to go on the record as saying that we call these shows Entrepreneur Heaven, but in no way do Ron and I, you know, say that these people are actually in heaven. (laughs) We're, we're We're not canonizing these folks. We're not... We're not looking to say that these are uh, actually saints. We're just saying that in in the in the world of entrepreneurs, these these people have done some pretty special and innovative things and and created new stuff for us to that that has really made all of our lives better in some way. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. These are, some of these folks are not great people. You know, <laughs> along those lines, Ron. You know, I I, uh, I I do some podcasting, as you know, for for Sage, and and you've been a guest on that podcast as well. And and I always ask an exit question, which is, what is it? Who is a hero of yours, and why are they a hero? Question that I shamelessly stole from my friend Howard Hansen. And I love that question because it really you do really do get to know people in depth when you ask them that question, and. What I find fascinating about that question is I would say at least a third of the time, well, maybe it's a quarter of the time, people will say to me in preface of their answer, well, I don't really have any heroes, but I have people who I greatly admire. And, and then, you know, if you look up the definition of the word hero, it's people that you greatly admire. I think that this, this, this sainthood and these you have to be a good person or is wrapped up in this idea of hero, and um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know where that, that, where that, that connotation of hero got, got stuck, but it, I, it certainly is part of this whole thing too. And in all of these entrepreneurs, we're not saying that they, again, these, that these are great people as individuals. They probably, in some cases, were nasty to deal with, um, and had some outright character flaws. But there's no reason why you can't have a hero who's got character flaws. I mean, that's you think about the the Greek heroes, right? Ron, they had by definition there was always a tragic, a, a flaw of every hero. Absolutely. In fact, Ed, I, I know that you've asked me that question on on several different podcasts. Who are your heroes? And mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to let you know, in, in doing the prep for this show, I came across a Mac World Expo speech that Jobs gave in March of 1999, and he said. How do you tell somebody what you are, who you are, what you care about? If you know who somebody's heroes are, that tells you a lot about them. Bingo. And that was that was the actual inspiration for his Think Different campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, that commercial where he showed Picasso and Ford and Edison? Well, those were Jobs' heroes. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, and and I I think it's very true. I think we 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 it's a it's a good question, like I said, to get to know somebody. In fact, I've I've often said that if I were I were limited to one question on an interview for somebody, if I'm interviewing some somebody for a job, that would be the question I would ask them. That's the you know, so if that was the one question, that would be it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, the only other question I think that I might put in its place would be what what one book has you know inspired you the most. Mm-hmm. Which but, is a, a variation on hero. But let's let's talk about Steve Jobs. What what, what do you got on Steve and Jobs? Well, I wanted to go back to a 1981 interview he gave Ed because you know Apple started in 1975. Uh, <laughs> Uh, amusingly enough, Jobs sold his VW microbus and, and Wozniak sold his scientific calculator and they raised $1,300 and they launched Apple and they used to sell, you know, those kit computers for $666. So talk about charm pricing, but yeah, really, uh, and we'll leave that for another episode. But he did this interview in 1981, and so we're only you know six years in. This was and let's even, put some context around that. This is before he got tossed out because he got tossed out, I believe, in '85. Absolutely. In fact, this is before uh, the Macintosh. Okay. Um, and they asked him, "What is a personal computer?" And he said, "Well, I like the analogy of the bicycle because he was reading a report, a study in Scientific American, mm-hmm. that about the efficiency of locomotion for various species." On the on the earth, including man, and he said the condor won far and away. He said until you put a man on a bicycle, and he said this illustrated to me a man's ability as a toolmaker. Right, we've talked about this before with yep. respect to yep. Matt Ridley, and he said Apple is the personal computer of the 21st century. It's it's the 21st century bicycle. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always used to say it's the bicycle for the mind. Yep. And he said it's that special relationship that develops between one person and one computer that ultimately improves productivity on a personal level. And we've mentioned this before, but it's why Apple and all their advertisements usually just show one person using their product because it's that intimate, personal you know, connection you have. And that's why I think the watch is so interesting because it is the most personal of their devices since it's literally attached to your body. Right. right, And is, is something that's not going to be shared. In fact, you know, that's, that, that, that's always a challenge because one of the, the things that the rumor has it, by the way, because Apple, I think is making some announcements next week, as I recall, that you, that, that they are going to add um, u- user preferences or multiple users for their iPads. And that's something that actually jobs was against. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. They also asked him in this interview, Ed, and then I'll I'll let you take over here. But he said, they asked him, how is Apple going to maintain its leadership in the industry? Again, this is 1981. And listen to what he said. He said, Apple is committed, he said, to the integration of computers into our society on a personal level. He said, this is going to take 10 or 15 years. He's talking about the democratization of technology, isn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, yep. back in '81, and he said, you know, he said Apple's continuing success will result from innovation, not duplication. And he says one of the issues is it takes about 20 hours now to get truly fluent with your Apple. He said we'd like to reduce that into under an hour, which means we have to continuously improve our user interface. And he said we have to instead of you know forcing people to adapt to the computer, we have to adapt the computer to the people. And he said, this brings up an interesting paradox. To make a computer easier to use requires a more sophisticated computer. And then he talked about the price. 
And he said, it's always been Apple's objectives to build the least expensive, useful computer, not necessarily the cheapest. We build tools, not toys. Ultimately, you will get more Apple power for the same dollar. And I just thought, wow, that was really prescient because that's kind of what he did with the iPod, right? He democratized technology. Yeah, after after he came back and you know was 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 forced out after he got John Scully on board from Pepsi with you know the famous line, do you, you know do you want to sell sell sugared water the rest of your life or do you want to put a dent in the universe? Right. You know, uh, and ultimately, uh, you know that 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 caused. Jobs to actually get tossed out, and th- then there were another another string of product failures because Scully was the marketer, and and you know not not somebody who I think uh, was as attentive to design as as Jobs was, and then you know they had, they had to bring him back. But you know it, the Apple continues to do stuff like that 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 confounds its users, including me, by the way. Uh, you know, and I think that this is still a direct out growth of jobs but i was in the apple store a couple of weeks ago and i was looking at the brand new macbook and the, the there's only one connector on it ron i don't know if you're aware of this one mm. that's mm. it one and only one there's only one thing and it's it's for power everything and one of the th- and uh, it, one of the challenges is is that it's it's a you, you they they really don't want you to use it with an external monitor at all uh, although they do have it, you know, hook up to VGA, which you know, for pr- guys like you and I who do presentations, it's a requirement, right? We, this, right. So we would need it. But you know what they 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 purposefully left off is the ability to connect it to their own Thunderbolt display. Interesting. And I'm sitting there going, "What is going on here?" But anyway, we're we're talking about Steve Jobs, and I would just, I, but I that to me though is that's still reminiscent of what. He, he would use to do because he was the first one with like his next computer when he was at Apple. Well, I mean, when he's at next, after he left Apple um, and in, in, in between, you know, he was at, at, he started next and that was the first computer that had, uh, it not only had an optical drive, a, a CD-ROM, it only had an optical drive. Right. It did not have a floppy at all. And, you know, people were, well, oh, my God, that's crazy. And, of course, you know, that, that, that then became, you know, ubiquitous shortly thereafter. And then the same thing with the, 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 the MacBook Pro Air, you know, did not have an internal optical drive, didn't have a, a, a CD-ROM. And people were like, this is crazy. How can you sell a computer without a CD-ROM? And yet, you know, <laughs> that has now become completely ubiquitous and uh, it be, because of, uh, of the, you know, the fact that you can connect to the Internet and download all of the apps via that way and the, the speed. So, you know, j- j- just just that continues to be his legacy. Anyway, we were sharing you were sharing quotes from Jobs. I just want to share you my personal favorite quote from sure. him. And that's that's uh, it's better to be a pirate than join the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorite, too. I love that line. I actually think an ad guy said that going way back, like uh, not Ogilvy, but somebody like that. And maybe that's where Jobs lifted that. But it's still a great line for oh, sure. OK. All right. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, I've only seen it attributed to him, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure it goes back. But, I, yeah, I, I, you know, in a sense, I've, I've tried to live a, a small, small piece of that. You know, if, if you guys if anyone goes to my Twitter handle at Ed Kless, my, my I list my my title as corporate iconoclast, you know, um, 
and which is in a sense, hey, I work for Sage, but I do this radio show. How did how do you how did you get to do that, Ed? And you know, people people ask me now that I was like, well, I just did. <laughs> well, one of my favorite lines, Ed, that he said about somebody else was, you know, when he came back to Apple in 1997 as the ICEO, you know, the interim CEO, yes. he got Microsoft to invest 150 million dollars into that oh, company, famously, which, yeah, yeah, which really saved them because they were on the verge of, you know, going under. And a little while later, somewhere, you know, he he slammed Microsoft and said their products were uninspired. Um, but then he apologized, and he said, and this is kind of how he apologized. He said, I, 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 he says, I wish him the best, Bill Gates. I really do. I just think he and Microsoft are a bit narrow. He'd be a broader guy if he had dropped acid once or gone off to an ashram when he was younger. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that I have to bring up, just because it's our show and and this is what we this is what we do, he said. But when he was backpacking around India, this was before he started the company. He said it's the first time he really got to thinking that you know, hey, maybe Thomas Edison did more to improve the world than Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, you, you know, and I, I also think that some of, some of his just philosophy on design and then also on entrepreneurialism and the economy or is 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 important to understand like you know and I'm I'm misquoting here but the one hey I'm I'm prouder of what Apple hasn't done that yes. that I think is is really an important one to focus in on as well the whole focus thing and you know when he started his stores um, in 2001 uh, a retail consultant by the name of David Goldstein and you can see this article in Business Week said, I give them two years before they're turning out the lights on a very painful and very expensive mistake. And uh, the, the title of the article in Business Week was commentary. Sorry, Steve. Here's why Apple stores won't work. And of course, uh, you know, the, this Apple New York store does something like $4,000 per square foot in sales, which Tiffany's does 2600 just to put it into context. So that's kind of interesting. But interestingly enough, Ed, he benchmarked the Four Seasons hotels for the Apple stores. And that's kind of how he got inspired by the Genius Bar, you know, the con- which was the concierge, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And and the layout, and so he went to Four Seasons. So we always talk about if you're going to benchmark, please do it outside of your industry. And and he was he was really known for that. He looked at other places. He thought creativity was all about connections. Yeah, no, and 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 a genius that way. Yeah. So, wow, this just flew by. Uh, it's hard to do Mr. Jobs justice, folks, because he has such a lasting impact, not not only in the computer sector, but in, what, five other industries as well, if you count Pixar and, and all of that. But uh, right now, we need to take a break and like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. And we also have a new website, folks, that you can check out, the soulofenterprise.com. And that's where we now post all of our show notes, and you can listen to the show there. And right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. 
We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. I think there's a worldwide market for maybe five computers. <laughs> So supposedly said Thomas Watson Sr. And, and, and by the way, we could probably add Thomas Watson Jr., his son, to a future list. But we're, we're talking today about Thomas Watson Sr. Full disclosure, I did work for IBM as an intern, Ron, at, during, oh, during college. I didn't and, realize that. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was in 1987 and it was a, it was a very interesting experience because uh, you you could see that the the culture was still a little bit alive that you know had got them so far but this was this is when they were beginning to have some of their their challenges um, in fact they, a lot of a lot of the 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 folks there would tell Thomas Watson or TJ as they call him TJ stories uh, you know, would would would, co- would often come up, and it was it's just after I guess about five or six years after Junior had left, and they were really meandering and trying to trying to find their way. But uh, let, just to give you an idea of how old of the my the boss that I had, she was still allowed to smoke in her office, mm. right? And she but she had to put it out if anybody came in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, so you were always you know when you ever a meeting with her you know unless you you know knew that ahead of time you're going to meet with her and then she would have it all cleaned up and you it, you never would surprise her you just kind of walk by her office and see if she was smoking because you didn't want to have to ha- make her put it out you know <laughs> right right <laughs> but but anyway it was, and, and but the, the the culture of of IBM was still there one of the guys that I worked with his his name was Herb and I, I went into Herb as this this summer well it wasn't just a summer job it was it was it was an internship that i had for i guess 18 months and uh, i was doing a lot of data crunching around the they're in their education department and you want to you know you got to see the survey that that anyone who f- who went to one of ibm's education classes had to fill out this it was like a 30 page survey right, right, <laughs> just, right. just intense anyway i would 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 enter these surveys in and crunch the numbers and then come back and i one of the guys I reported to, Herb, I would go into his office and you know usually present something to him, some 
something that I've insight that I had had made from this data just to to share with him. And Herb would would push back when I would say something. I could tell that I impact him because he would push back from his desk and he would rock back in his chair, you know, just rock back and he he would say, Ed, let me think. <laughs> right? And you and I would sit there and I would have to watch Herb think <laughs> for, for like four or five minutes sometimes, right? <laughs> but this is this that was the culture of Thomas Watson Watson Sr. He's he's the one who who started the idea of those think, think pads signs. that he gave out to everybody. In fact, I still have one of them. I'll well, I'll take a picture of it and I will wow. uh I'll, uh, we'll put it on the website because I have one. I'm holding it in my hand right now. I kind of wow. keep it as a souvenir. Um, it, so it was, it was just an, a, a powerful culture. So the, if anything that this guy did, because he was not really the technical person, mm-hmm. um, right? But he was clearly responsible for cultivating the sales culture and just the overall culture of the organization that exists down to this day. Yeah, you know, they say if the potato famine hadn't happened in Ireland, then IBM Corporation may have never existed because <laughs> his family migrated to the United States to escape that tragedy. But uh-huh. apparently, Ed, he, he started out as a teacher, but he couldn't take the kids all day, so he quit. So then he After became, like one day or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then in 1892, he took some courses in accounting and he got a job as a $6 a week bookkeeper and quickly decided he didn't want to do that. So he went off to sell pianos and organs and sewing machines. But it's, when, it's, it's, it's the job at National Cash Register. Right. And the, uh, the guy there, Henry Patterson, John Henry Patterson, who was kind of his mentor, who ended up firing him, I believe. And then he went to work for the, uh, he was the president of the Computing Tabulating Recording Company in 1914. And I think that morphed into something else to do with like time clocks. And, you know, they were kind of a devotee of Frederick Taylor, Mm -hmm. you know, for the time clock. And you can see some early advertisements uh, about, you know, getting the most out of your people's time and all of that. Um, But he, he really instituted the sales culture and he was big on education because, he started, I, I don't know if you'd call it a corporate university back then. I don't think they did. But he got different people from that entire company together to share their experiences and share their intellectual capital. And he thought it made better people. He was really big on developing people. Mm-hmm. In fact, my favorite line from him is, the success of every major executive depends on the men under him. He said their success depends on the men under them. Really successful men are pushed up not pulled up and he thought if you were an executive and and you weren't constantly spotting talent below you and helping them develop then they had no use for you yeah and you could see that that was that was clearly a part of the culture even back in 1987 when i was there because they they uh they they they, they aspired to that for me right you know they they one of the things that i was always asked is do, do, constantly asked I, I i can distinctly remember being asked do you need anything ed to do what you're doing better better wow 
Yeah, you don't you don't get that a lot. Nope. <laughs> nope. And I, I mean, I, and back in ninety, I had a big wanking IBM AT with a ten megabyte hard drive on my Jeez. on my desk. And I can say this that I I re, and this is another thing I distinctly remember that my computer was more powerful than anybody else in the department. And I was working in in in, a, in an offshoot of headquarters. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> But this they would have gave, been in New gave, York somewhere outside. It was. Of New York. It was actually no. Actually, outside of it was in Valhalla, and the the, the you know Armonk is their headquarters, which is right. which is um, in in Westchester, and Valhalla is a. It was a satellite of of headquarters. It was still considered HQ, right? Uh, but it, but it just housed. This is where the educational group was, and. And, and in fact, the, and, and I, I also was the the one the keeper of what was called at the time the info window. Which was this m- kind of massive IBM AT Plus that had all of this stuff, and it had ready run a touch screen. Wow. Nineteen eighty seven, and what were they using it for? To deploy educational classes. Wow, that's what they were using it for. Wow. So, yep. Yeah, pretty cool stuff, and and but you know again this is this is the, going back to Watson. Uh, you you could tell that this that this culture. Uh, inside this organization came from this this individual and re- was really passed down from one person to the next to the next it didn't it didn't happen on accident it was clearly something that from the the very beginning uh it, 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 you know culture cultivate and that that's certainly what IBM did right you know he also said um he said no one is, has to be a genius to succeed in business one does not have to lie awake nights worrying about his job all we ask our men to do is to look their work squarely in the face and say, this is the right thing to do. If they do what common sense tells them to do, nine out of ten times, it will be the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this was an essay, by the way, he wrote in 1926 it, it called To Make a Business Grow, Begin Growing Men. And a lot of it talks about just how important it is to develop men. He, he talks about the five key points for growing a business being hiring, training, supervising, promoting, and discharging. So really, Ed, focusing on the human capital, if you think yep. about it. Yep. And, and, and some of his more famous slogans besides think were ever onward and beat your best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did they yep. make you wear a white shirt, by the way? Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny you ask, answer that. So I did, I did have to wear a tie, but right. I did, as an intern, I did not have to wear a jacket um, and they were okay with me not wearing like a suit, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So I just, but I did have to wear a tie every day, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, he also said that um, machines should work, people should think. Mm-hmm. So he always drew that distinction between the the man and the machine, and we don't want men to become machines because then they'll become automatons. He also says, and I like this line: "Capitalists are people who make bets on the future." Mm-hmm. Which is kind of neat. Um, so, a very interesting guy. Um, uh, one interesting point, just because we've profiled Henry Ford, and we mentioned oh, yeah. he got yeah. he got the highest award from the uh, Nazi Party at the time. Well, IBM did a lot of business with Nazi Germany as well, and Watson accepted a medal from the Nazis in 1937, the Merit Cross of the German Eagle, which I believe is the same award that Ford got. I'm not sure if they're different, mm-hmm. um, but Watson returned the medal. In 1940, yes, yeah, and but uh, but you know r- rumors uh, uh, persist that they still did some work 
uh, through one of their subsidiaries, which you know, it kind of fascinated me about this this whole idea of, of international business and how you know, you really think about it, globalization has almost become a hedge bet against a, a world war. Right. I mean, if there, yes. if, there, if there were if there were 20 more companies like IBM back in the 40s, I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, that the, the, there might not have been a world war over it. Right. We might have, now, what do you do about a guy about like Hitler? I don't know, but uh, it, it might not have come to that. You know, might, there might have been more more um, uh, reason for the people to rise up against a Hitler inside Germany. So. Right. You know, it's interesting you say that because didn't Steven Pinker just come out with some type of report trying to make that same argument? Yes. That globalization has, has caused a decrease in, in wars and yes. violence? Yes. Very interesting. It you is know, interesting. Um, I'm, I got some of this research, Ed, from a book called Giants of Enterprise, which is by a scholar, a historian of, of business, believe it or not, a guy named Richard S. Tedlow. Mm-hmm. He's a fabulous business author, but a real true historian as well. And he said, business people have often been willing to do business with the devil as long as the check clears. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But no doubt Watson was a, was a you know, seminal guy, and, and he really uh, poised that company for uh, decades of success. Oh yeah, no, no, absolutely, and and again, passing it on to his his son then, who who did some pretty incredible things in his own right. So it wasn't 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 just his uh, his business acumen, but obviously his personal relationship and and uh, as a as a father bringing up a son in with 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 the same thought process, right? Right, and then of course his son got confronted with Jobs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> attacking you know their their core business and then trying to uh, shrink the the computer to the personal level, which they did. Yeah, yeah. I remember the ad that they ran when uh, IBM announced they're entering the personal business. Uh, you know, and and Apple ran that big ad in the New York Times. Welcome mm-hmm. IBM. Seriously, remember that? Yeah, they said yeah. it was also one of the biggest lies ever uh-huh. published. But you know, I I think there was some truth to it. They 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 did think that having IBM in the market legitimized the the concept. Oh yeah. Well, then they did the you know the 1984 commercial. But lastly, as we move on from him, I just want to say read what the, the inside of this little think uh, notebook I have. It says dedication to every customer's success, innovation that matters for our company and for the world, and trust and personal responsibility in all relationships. I love it. That's yep. great. And and just on that point, Ed, I'm back to back to Jobs for a minute. And I'm not sure they probably don't have this with Thomas Watson Senior. I don't know when uh, the Smithsonian Institute started to do these oral histories, but they have one with Steve Jobs from 1995. And you can, I think, you can watch these or listen to them, and the way you can read the transcripts. And I have to say, they're fascinating. They're really in depth interviews with with some of the, the you know history makers here in this country, and of course Jobs Stanford University. You know, commencement address. You've you've got to find what you love from June 14, 2005. So I'll link to these on the show notes so people can see it. But I've I've read them both, and they're they're really worth the read. Great stuff, great stuff. Well, we're up against our second break already, Ron. Again, this show is flying by on these uh, entrepreneur heaven. Lo- I love love talking about this with you. It's just a fascinating topic to too. glean what we can from from these giants who came before us. But we are uh, up against a break. We do want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at tsoe at verisage.com. Love the new website, thesoulofenterprise.com, as Ron mentioned. So please go and take a look there. We are very proud of it. And make sure that you also go out to iTunes. We 
we do have a couple more reviews out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A thousand thank yous for those reviews on iTunes. They are like gold to us. So please, if you like the work that we're doing here at the Soul of Enterprise, please go out and review it on iTunes. Very helpful for us to drive the show forward, and we appreciate it. But right now, we're going to hear from our friends at Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everyone. As Ed said, this is our second installment of Entrepreneur Heaven, and we've been talking about Steve Jobs and Thomas Watson Sr., and now we're going to turn our attention to a guy who, Ed, I find one of the most fascinating characters in, uh, in I think, in this entire series, and that's Charles Revson. Mm. And Mr. Revson was born in Somerville, Massachusetts in 1906. His father was a cigar roller. Uh, both of his parents were uh, Russian-born Jewish, and Revson actually means rabbi's son, so that was kind of interesting. And he had a brother, Joseph, and with his brother Joseph and another gentleman by the name of Charles Lackman, he, they formed Revlon in March 1st, 1932, when, Revlon, uh, when Charles was 25 years old. So pretty crappy time to start a company, if you think about it. Yeah. The, de- the depths. I mean, the only other worse year they probably could have picked would have been 1933. Uh, <laughs> but they were going to call the company Revlac, but, but Revson, who kind of had a, a good ear for marketing, didn't think it sounded so good. So he didn't want Revson either, so he changed it to Revlon. And, um, of course, the rest is history. But he, this guy was a fascinating person you know his famous quote and the real quote is by the way the reason women buy cosmetics is because they buy hope Mm. (laughs) that's his all-time you know most famous line now there's many variations of that but he was a fascinating guy because he was fanatical uh about the customer and really understanding the emotional and psychological reasons 
why they buy. And Eddie wasn't educated. Uh, he had a pretty tough childhood. He didn't, you know, he didn't go on to college or anything. He didn't have any of the normal qualifications you would expect from from an entrepreneur. He had no head for numbers. Hated numbers. Uh, completely avoided that side of the business. But he was a color. He, he had a, just an unbelievable eye for great color. And he used to actually, when he was in the early days of the company, when he was on the road out on sales calls, he would check into a hotel and he would always be with another salesman and they used to team up to save money. And the salesman writes that this guy would put on lipstick and nail polish and then call the front desk for wake-up calls at 2, 4, and 6 a.m. because he wanted to see how it would wear. <laughs> this is how fanatical he was about wow. the product. And, 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 you know, he did not want to compete on price. And, and, and this is another thing that's really interesting. He knew his company wasn't efficient. <laughs> and he wasn't at all interested in, you know, reducing costs or trying to be more efficient. In fact, he wanted to do things that were completely inefficient, like, you know, build a, a high-class salon where, where women could go and get, you know, like spa treatments and whole day things so he could test out new products and have a lab right there in his company. And so he didn't want to compete on price. So where most of his competitors were selling, for example, nail polish at a dime, he sold it for 50 cents. And rather than selling stuff for, you know, lipstick for 50 cents, he sold it for a buck. He, he tried to mark up his product four times cost when his competitors were going for two because he wanted to market it as not a, not a beauty aid, but a fashion accessory. Mm. He, he said, what we're really selling is the turning of a head or a touch of class. Wow. And, and of and, course, he was the first one to match up the colors, right? Like the lipstick shade with the, with the, 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 the nail polish, etc. Yes. And, you know, part of his inspiration for that was he was a great admirer of General Motors, who, of course, you know, their tagline was a brand for each purpose and purse. So you start mm-hmm. with a Chevy, right, in your life, and you trade up to Buick and whatever, and then you end up with a caddy in your old age. And he wanted to do the same thing. So he grew his lines and he realized that hey different occasions different moods women change they want to change their color they they feel they need color to feel beautiful and these were insights that just you know quadrupled his business within very short periods of time and he he also did something else i i, I and i've written about this before on our facebook page but he think i think he did one of the most innovative ads I've ever in, in marketing history. And I'd love to get Tim Williams take on this, but it was called fire and ice. And what was so great about it was he just got so much free publicity from radio stations. Stores would put copies of this ad in their windows and their displays. And it was just a phenomenal ad. And just to give you a little touch of it, it didn't focus at all on the product. He never really focused on the product. He focused on the emotions behind the product. So this ad, Ed, was a series of questions, and you being a question guy, you know, have you ever danced with your shoes off? Did Mm. you ever wish on a new moon? Do you blush when you find yourself flirting, right? Uh, Do you secretly hope the next man you meet will be a psychiatrist? It it just goes on and on with all (laughs) these questions. Do you close your eyes when you're kissed? You know, all of this. And the, the CMO said, 
you know, there's a little bit of bad in every good woman. He said, we're just trying to give women a little immoral support. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually a phenomenal ad. And you can, you can just Google this, folks. Just Google Fire and Ice and you'll see it. But the, the lead model was uh, Dorian Lee, uh, just a, a beautiful model. In fact, she was the sister of Susie Parker. Uh, and she was the model for this, uh, for this campaign. And it, it's just one of the most innovative campaigns I've ever, you don't see marketing like this anymore. I mean, it was really, truly bringing up emotions. And I think, uh, I think you'd have to say Charles Revson understood behavioral economics. Uh, clearly, and the, the whole pricing thing you were mentioning, you know, four, four times factor, but it, it was also, a, I'm sure, a quality, a signal of quality, right? His, his stuff was better, even though it probably was pretty similar, you know, from, yeah. a, from a, that standpoint. And all of his competitors were telling him he was crazy, he'd never be able to sell that much. But by actually increasing the price of cosmetics, he actually sold more. And so he actually started, you know, he was the price leader, obviously, in the industry for a long time. So people started, you know, maybe not undercutting so much and, and engaging in price wars with them, but moved up their prices. And this is why I continue to think that cosmetic companies are just such phenomenal pricers because they understand the true value of what they're trying to do. And yeah, they certainly the, don't base their price on cost, that's for sure. Absolutely, and they understand the, the emotional reasons why their people are buying. He, he also really pounded uh, to his executives the point of differentiation. And one of my favorite all-time books, so we're kind of crossing shows here, crossing theme shows. We've got the best business books yeah. and entrepreneur. <laughs> but one of my all-time favorite business books, probably in my top 100, is a book called Fire and Ice. And it's the unauthorized biography of Charles Revson by a guy named Andrew Tobias, a financial writer. And right. it's a fantastic book. You probably only get it out of print, folks. You probably have to order it off Amazon, you know, from a used book bookseller. But it is just an unbelievable per uh, page turner as a business book. And he talks about this story about Revson once spending 45 minutes in the seminar of his international marketing executives having a dialogue with a glass of water. 45 minutes, Ed, he's going on, and he says he was trying to teach them the meaning of product differentiation, and he holds up, he holds up this water glass, and he picked it up, held it out, and he said, you know, in this friendliest way, hello, glass, what makes you different? You're not crystal, you're, you're a plain glass, you're not empty, you're not full, and then he began telling the glass how it could be made special by changing the design, changing the color of the water, giving it a stem, and so on. And these guys were just blown away by, by, by this, you know, this conversation that was happening for 45 minutes. So I also think Revson would agree with us that there's no such thing as a commodity. No, for, without sure. I mean, he, he sold a concoction of chemicals for four bucks in 1932 or whatever. So I'm, I'm sure he would agree. Now, you know, interesting. One of the things that I picked up when when, when researching this guy, and uh, you know, he was he was involved in the quiz show scandals too. Yes. Right. The sixty-four thousand dollar question, yes. and of course, you know, well, all right. What exactly was this? Well, it turns out that what he was do, what supposedly, and he he uh, nor anybody at the at the the company was ever uh, charged or any part of an official inquiry. It, it stayed at the quiz show. Now, I don't know if they were insulated or what have you. I don't know the story. But right. what I do know is that what what is alleged to have happened is that they were demanding that the producers control the questions in order to keep people winning. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because what they wanted was was people to tune in to see people win the $64,000, right? So Yeah, you don't want to tune in to watch people lose, yeah. <laughs> right? So <laughs> So, th- so apparently, you know that that was that was the deal. Uh, you know, in a way, th- this guy was the uh, a pioneer of the reality television show, right? I mean, what he was pushing people towards was this, you know, because the reality shows, you know, the reality shows are not reality, Ron. You get you do get that, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They're they're you know? more t- they're more planned than a sitcom, probably. Right, and, and yeah. look, and even the stuff that started out as reality, and I, I really do enjoy watching, you know, Pawn P A W N stars, yeah. uh, but but I have to say that it, it has become less appealing to me the more and more they build the the fluff in you know the the mm. the, the tension that happens in the shop which is yes. clearly contrived absolutely yeah because they're not the greatest actors right <laughs> <laughs> but but again you know here's the situation what what this guy wanted was he he, he wanted people to win these contests win these shows now he of, of course was the the guy who was supporting the, the the show from a commercial standpoint too so people were seeing his commercials but he he understood the idea of, of the the value of hey give this away for free in other words he was almost giving away the sixty four thousand dollars to people right it- through through the contest because he was the one who was sponsoring that, uh, but at the same time, what, it, what that was doing was driving sales of his product. So you know, and isn't that what we're doing? You know, with our book, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and and he was such he had such a single focus on on the customer and the product and how it worked. I mean, he would literally recall entire batches of product just based on one or two complaints. You know, the joke about Revson was a banker couldn't get a hold. Of them as accountant lawyer couldn't get a hold of them, but if a woman had smudged lipstick, she could get right through. And you know, Tobias writes that a malicious competitor could could literally have have just you know bankrupted him by by falsifying a few complaints. Because mm-hmm. and this was long before consumerism and Ralph Nader and recalls and all that. But one interesting anecdotal story story that I found uh, from this book was he was having an executive meeting and the Pope was scheduled to visit New York and come to find out the route was going to go right by the Revlon headquarters in New York. And so the executives were all, oh, wow, what window should we go to to get the best view? And Revson walks in as they're all chatting and they tell them, well, we were chatting about the Pope's visit. And he said, what the hell for? We don't sell to the Vatican. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So interesting. But anyway, folks, Fire and Ice, uh, just one of the greatest business books I've ever read. And again, Ed, this, this was not a, a pleasant guy. He was a misogynist. I mean, there's all sorts of, there's a whole dark side to this man. I'm not, I'm not trying to turn him into a saint. I'm just saying that, boy, did he understand the emotional purchases and the psychological reasons behind makeup and and priced for it and understood that it wasn't a commodity. So folks, but we need to take a break. And in the meantime, I'd like to remind you again that you can uh, find the show notes on the soul of enterprise.com, the new website that Ed put together that we're so happy with. And Uh, And again, we'd like to thank you for rating the show on iTunes. That is a big help. And in the meantime, we want to hear from Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., 
These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Entrepreneur Heaven, and we've got one more entrepreneur to go, Mary Kay Ash. But before we get there, Ed, I just really quick wanted to bring out a question that we got asked from one of our listeners, Jackie Brahman, and he wrote, I've been listening to you guys for a few months now. I came across Ron Baker's work in a workshop I did called Law Firms of the Future. We're trying to figure out who that was. <laughs> he said, I realize now that the facilitator had ripped off most of the content, <laughs> but it was valuable. I've tried introducing a version of value pricing to my law firm. I bought it as a sole practice two years ago. I now have one employee solicitor who has complete autonomy. What I really hope is that Ron is wrong when he says that economy of scale doesn't apply to a law firm. I hope it applies up to a point, say maybe five to ten solicitors, which I hope to have. I'm still struggling with the old-fashioned business model for law firms, though, and I'm trying to think of a way to introduce some subscription service or retainer system for the ordinary mom and dad client. Love to hear a brief comment on this in one of your Free Rider Fridays. And Ed, I just wanted to point out, you know, and I did respond to, to Jackie, but uh, again, to make the point that we don't believe there's economies of scale. And when we're talking about that, we mean, you know, in large firms, obviously. I mean, a 500 uh, partner law firm, 500 man law firm is not going to be more efficient or have more lower costs and say a 200 person that does not mean that leverage is not an important uh, factor in profitability when you're talking about the smaller firm Rick Payne recently did a study called the performance characteristics of accounting firms that are sending their owners home with at least a million dollars now it was a study of Australian firms but what he found was that leverage is the most significant factor separating the best from the rest in other words all of the top performing firms that he looked at have more team members per partner than the rest. So, Jackie, I think if you're talking about team members and adding up to, like you say, 10 or 5, 5 to 10 solicitors, that probably will give you some more leverage in terms of leveraging intellectual capital or human capital. And as long as you're you know, following the division and specialization of labor, then, yeah, I do think that that will enhance your profitability. The most profitable profitable firms we see, corroborated, by the way, by this study by Rick Payne, uh, are in sole proprietors, 
but a lot of those have up to 10 people working for them. So I, I think you're on the right track. And, and Ed, you probably when he talks about introduce some subscription service, you would probably say access level agreements. Right, right. Yeah, no, I would. And that's, I think that's the, the way that wave of the future on this. I, just a, a quick comment on this, Ron, as you, you were talking, I was working with a firm this week, and uh, I won't name them, but it's a top 100 CPA firm in North America. And, and one of the ways that they were self-described to me, which I thought was interesting, was we are a large firm of small firms. Mm. And and what what struck me about that one, and they felt that that was they were unique in that position. And what I found that was very interesting, and in just about every large firm that I've ever been into says something exactly the same. Right, right. <laughs> and, and you know, Jackie, I will on our show notes, I will link to this white paper by Rick Payne that you can get. Now it's for. It's for accounting firms, not law firms, but I still think you'll find it useful. It's available for free. I just think you have to register to, to be able to download it. But I think it's really worth your time to read because Rick is really making some interesting points in this paper by studying high-performing firms and what kind of characteristics they have. I, I found it very fascinating. And Rick is kind of a seminal thinker, so I trust a lot of what he does. So um, it's definitely worth reading. But Ed, let's talk about Mary Kay Ash um, from from your state of Texas. Right? Yes, from Dallas. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, born in 1918 and uh, passed away, I guess, in 2001 at the age of 83. And I've always found her kind of fascinating because I, I know it's you know Mary Kay Ash. It's door to door, and it's the last thing you want knocking on your door. But I remember reading at some point, and I don't know if this was in the 70s or the 80s, that the, the Mary Kay Ash Corporation is responsible for turning more women into millionaires than any other organization on the planet. I would say that that is, you know, I don't know if it, it, it still is true, but it at the time it was. I mean, it was one of the few things that was was open to them uh, to 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 from a from a sales standpoint, a career standpoint. And you know what what one of the things that she really did was was to teach a lot of women about business. E- even those you know, and and look, there's there's some definitely some muckraking going on. When I was doing the research, we, you know, we came I came across some uh, you know stuff on uh, look, it's just multi level marketing and all of these things, which. Hey, may or may not be true. I don't have any insight into that. But what I can say is that the people that I know who have been involved with Mary Kay have, even if they don't stick with Mary Kay, have gone on to other things and have said that the principles that they used and learned while doing the Mary Kay was a great first business for them to get into because they 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 were able to learn about business. And I'm talking about women who are you know my aunt my aunts and 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 men mother's ages right sure. who are doing this kind of stuff and it, it was again an opportunity that was was open to open to them and you know different di- very different from the avon which was much more controlled mm-hmm. you know, the, the, this seemed to be much more uh, uh, what what it called consultant centric um, so it, it, interesting because I because I do I, I do think that that there is a there is an MLM, MLM component to, to Mary Kay without question, but I I look at the other the ancillary things that that have went on, um, and and they did they were big believers in teaching people about the basics of 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 of, of business, and and you know her founding principle was the golden rule. 
Right. Uh, and, and she thought that she really wanted to help other women succeed. And, you know, she talked about praising people to success. And her, her slogan was God first, family second, career third. But I found it interesting that she used to work for the Stanley Home Products Company. And she got frustrated after she got passed over for a promotion. They promoted a guy who she had trained. Yeah, <laughs> and she got so mad she left in 1963 to write a book uh, uh, on how to assist women in business, and this book became kind of her ideal business. So it became a business plan for the for the Mary Kay uh, Cosmetics Company that she founded in 1963, I think it was. But yeah, I, you know, I, and I look, she's won all these awards. I mean, she had Horatio Alger Award. She was inducted to the Junior Achievement. U.S. Business Hall of Fame, uh, you know, she, her company made the 100 best companies to work for in America, according to Fortune, and on one list, the best 10 companies for women to work. So there's no doubt that she was committed to women's success. And uh, from what I've seen, Ed, in 2014, um, the Mary Kay Cosmetics Company has more than 3 million consultants worldwide and does over $3 billion dollars. Yeah, it, 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 look, there's just there's controversy about the churn in there and and what's going on. I, by the way, you'll 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 appreciate this. But one of the websites that I first stumbled across that was kind of bashing of this was uh, called the Fraud Files Forensic Accounting Blog. So. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and and I and I, you know, I, I think that you you certainly anytime you just take statistics like that, you 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 can you can twist it and make it work. And you know, you, do do I wish that Mary Kay would would release uh, what what percentage of their their uh, consultants uh, stay on more than X number of uh, of years? Yes, they don't. They they you know they they were public. They they I think they they brought the company back because they didn't want to start to reveal those numbers um you know it, it, were there some some people who were involved in mary Kay who maybe weren't the the most ethical yeah possibly i'm sure that sure. there were right but we're talking about mary Kay and what she did uh to to assist women and to assist people in understanding the principles of business and and for that i just don't think that you can you can really rat on her that much so right. I, I agree and she's author of three books too and we'll post those on our show notes but ed what's up for next week Next week, we are going to interview one of your faves, right? Our friend Kevin Mitchell from the Professional Pricing Society. I'm thrilled to have Kevin on. Really smart guy and have had the opportunity through you to meet him. And it's just going to be a good show. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, he'll give us a worldwide perspective on what's going on with pricing, folks. So you're not going to want to miss our interview with Kevin Mitchell. So, Ed, I'll see you in 167 hours. Cool. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us online at thesoulofenterprise.com. One, two, three, four.